is the Animalia Podcast, an audio and photo blog series about wildlife and animals on our shared planet. I'm your host and producer, Anna Miller. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel burnt out from the daily deluge of disturbing environmental news. And sometimes what I really need is just a good comeback story. So that's what we have for you today. A comeback story, a story of an underdog, or in this case, a bird who is defying the odds and making a mark on the world. Our uh, underdog is the Atlantic puffin. For nearly 50 years, one man has been working nonstop to bring Atlantic puffins back to a main island where they used to nest. And it's not a moment too soon. Since the 1950s, bird populations around the globe have taken a nosedive. And researchers think that we've lost more than three quarters of ocean-going seabirds, and that includes Atlantic puffins. This episode, we touch down in Maine to visit one of the few Atlantic puffin colonies in all of the United States and meet the man working tirelessly to reverse the global trend. Welcome to episode two. When it comes to Atlantic puffins, all roads eventually lead to one guy. His name is Steve Kress, a man whom I consider to be the Puffin Godfather. My friend Karen and I meet Steve on a bright summer morning in Bremen, Maine, after he pulls up the long dirt road in his Prius. Hello. How are you? Hi. I'm Anna. Anna. Nice Hi. to meet you, Karen. Karen. So nice to meet you. Karen. 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 Yes. Great. Well, thanks Excellent. so much for having us. Yeah. Steve has kind eyes and a distinguished gray beard. He wears a blue and green wool beanie with a small pom-pom on the top. He has an understated and soft-spoken nature, but just under the surface lies a lifelong passion and self-described obsession with Atlantic puffins. Steve is the director of Audubon's Project Puffin, and we're tagging along with him today as he visits Eastern Egg Rock, a tiny remote island six miles off the coast of Maine. And on the day we visit, it's early August, near the end of the puffins' breeding season, and Steve is making one last supply run out to the island, delivering food and equipment to the researchers camped out there. Okay, let's start passing the gear in. As our boat slowly makes its way out to the Atlantic Ocean, Steve, at the helm, tells us what we can expect on Eastern Egg Rock. Okay, from this distance, it doesn't look like much, but it's hard to believe that seven acres is home to 7,000 seabirds. So we're going to be getting there at the very end of the nesting cycle, but there's still plenty of birds around. So um, they're waiting for us. Let's go. Before we know it, we can see the rocky shoreline of the island emerging on the horizon. And Steve was right. From a distance, Eastern Egg Rock honestly doesn't look like much. It's a lot smaller than I thought it would be, and well, I guess a lot less dramatic of a backdrop. The island sits not much higher than the high tide mark, and it's made up of mostly large granite boulders and scrub brush. And that seven acre preserve really is tiny. Blink, and you'd motor right past it. As we near the island, Steve spots a large group of birds out in the water, bobbing on top of the ocean waves. 
right up the bow. That might be a little group of puffins. They're taking a bath out here. I think that's what that is, right there. Oh my gosh, that is such a nice view. And it is an amazing view. About a dozen yards away is a group of five Atlantic puffins paddling out towards us, seemingly out here to greet us like a feathered welcoming committee. And if you're wondering what an Atlantic puffin looks like, I'm not alone in thinking that they're probably one of the most charismatic fauna on the planet. Atlantic puffins look like a combination of a small penguin and a parrot. They're round, petite little black and white birds with vibrant orange and yellow beaks and matching orange webbed feet. Atlantic puffins also have distinct black markings around their eyes that gives them the illusion of a kind of quizzical, worried expression. Puffins are small, but they're also really mighty, spending most of their lives out in the cold North Atlantic Ocean. But in the summers, they do come to land to nest with their lifelong mate, and each season they raise a single chick, known as, and I kid you not, a puffling. Puffins are expert swimmers and divers, but on land, they are a little less graceful. They puff out their chest in a stoic fashion as they waddle, hop, and bumble along from boulder to boulder. And okay, in short, I'm just going to say it. They're really adorable. And it's really hard not to find a puffin endearing, let alone a group of puffins swimming and taking saltwater baths in the rolling ocean waves. They're bathing. See, this one here is bathing. It's taking a bath. It's throwing the water up over its wings. And often when one does that, the others will... Uh, do, do, there's three more straight ahead of us. Steve has been working on behalf of puffins for nearly 50 years, and moments like this are a culmination of his life's work, proof that his nearly five decades of commitment is really starting to pay off. They, they're very tame, too. Did you see how close we could get to those birds? And, of course, that's what got him into trouble back in the hunting days uh, when people were saw a puffin as something to eat rather than as something to, to marvel at. Back in the day, Atlantic puffins once lived in great numbers off the coast of Maine. But people began to hunt puffins for their meat and feathers. And by the time the late 1800s rolled around, the Maine puffin population was essentially wiped out. On one island, far off the coast of Maine, called Matinicus Rock, by 1901, all of the puffins were hunted, except for a single surviving pair. Those two puffins kept the colony alive, and slowly, over many decades, their colony began to grow. But Eastern Egg Rock wasn't so lucky. Every puffin on Eastern Egg Rock was killed. And without any survivors, the puffin colony in Eastern Egg Rock collapsed. The island's puffins were out of sight and out of mind and never expected to return. Puffins were gone from Eastern Egg Rock for more than 100 years, and no one seemed to even notice that they were even missing. Well, that's all until Steve Kress came along. It was the 1970s, and Steve was a young college student working as a birding instructor for an Audubon summer camp. He stumbled across a book in the camp's library and read a very brief passage about the lost puffin colonies in Maine. That one line changed his entire life. Then and there, Steve hatched a plan. It was time to bring back the Atlantic puffins to their historic breeding grounds, despite being gone from Eastern Egg Rock for more than a century. Steve was a man on a mission, but not everyone was on board. Atlantic puffins were considered to be an extirpated species on Eastern Egg Rock, and that's just a fancy word for a species that's locally extinct. And at the time, the scientific community largely believed that it was impossible to bring back an extirpated seabird colony. No one had ever done it before. 
and some thought his mission was destined for failure. It just couldn't be done. So Steve set out to prove them wrong. I thought they would be a model that we could learn about how to help other seabirds if we could learn how to help the puffins. But I didn't know how to do that, so we had to experiment, and we had to invent all the techniques that brought the birds back. Now, decades later, we're getting an up-close view of how his grand puffin experiment is going. We approach Eastern Egg Rock on a small rubber rowboat and time our landing with a series of gentle waves. We scramble over the sharp rocks as hundreds of laughing gulls hover overhead, surfing the air current in a complex aerial ballet. And it's loud. We're in the middle of a seabird colony, a world where birds call the shots. As we walk along a narrow dirt path, we ruffle up more than a few terns that defend their nearby nests. And all around us, terns begin to rocket down from the sky, dive-bombing our heads in the microphone, making sharp, sonar-like warning calls inches from our faces. They're small birds, but they can be really fierce. And that being said, this reception that we received today is pretty tame compared to what Steve and his interns endure on a daily basis. They dive at you, and they uh, have a habit of, of doing two things. One is um, hitting you in the head, and the other is squirting you with their guano. You know, some of them have learned to be very good at it. You know, we even have some that have learned to aim their guano at people's ears and fly by and shoot. Yeah, and if you, if you do get, end up with a little guano on your attire, that's uh, something to wear with pride. Are they doing it to protect their... They're doing it because their chicks are on the ground, usually underfoot. There's a buzzing of excitement among the interns and staff as they gather around Steve and fill him in on their recent discoveries. 198 and Burrow 130, I saw 67 puffins just like in that one window. Yeah, Rose counted 250. Yeah, 250. And you can tell right off the bat that this is a really tight knit group and how much the team really looks up to Steve. But you can also tell that it goes both ways. Steve really admires them too. They're living this project, and some of them have been out here since May. May, and here we are almost into August. They haven't left this rock. So knowing these biologists, the young conservation biologists, gives me the greatest hope of all, because their whole career lies ahead of them, and they're very inspiring with their dedication. Talk about my dedication and persistence, it's true, and hopefully they see that as, as a model that they themselves will have, but they already have it, or they wouldn't make it through the summer out here. This is not easy. It's not always a beautiful day like today. They've been out here in winds over 50 miles an hour, and their tents and their bird blinds, they've been shattered by the extreme weather this summer. And days of solid rain and fog where they can't even leave the campsite. And the island is remote. There's no electricity barely any cell phone service, and the interns sleep in tents and sleeping bags. Beside the bird blinds, there's only two structures on the island, an old drafty outhouse and a tiny cabin where researchers log data on a solar-powered computer. But instead of feeling isolated, the researchers seem to embrace the seclusion. Among them is Matt Dickey, a 20-something college student with a thick beard and shaggy brown hair. 
He hails from Texas and has been on Eastern Egg Rock for nearly four months as a Project Puffin intern. We don't have running water, obviously. We don't have a shower or anything like that. So periodically we'll go down to the ocean and take some biodegradable shampoo and soap and stuff and just clean up like that. But that's, you know, every couple weeks we'll do that. Um, you'd be surprised. We don't get, I mean, we get dirty and stuff, but there's something nice about getting dirty and just being outside. I mean, you just don't feel it. It's just, that's not too bad. Maybe a bit smelly, but... You guys smell good? Yeah, exactly. What do you guys eat out here? How do you cook? You would think that we eat just like bare bone stuff. We actually eat pretty well. We have... <laughs> I mean, we have resupplies every two weeks, which you guys brought us some lovely food today. We cook... A lot of times we'll just discuss, hey, what do you guys want for dinner? And then this one person will cook it. And see, we have everything from chana masala. One of our favorites is uh, hot dogs, baked beans. Um, we had lobster one day. One of the boats brought us some lobster that we uh, boiled up. That was fantastic. You would, I thought I would uh, lose weight coming out here for the summer, but I've actually gained a bit of weight. So, <laughs> Laura Brazier, the supervisor of Eastern Egg Rock, gives the island her full endorsement. Life is pretty fantastic here. I mean, you're surrounded by the ocean, so it's basically like you're on a constant beach the whole time, which is pretty great. You're, con you're surrounded by seabirds, so you're living in a seabird colony, which is a great way to be immersed in the work that you're doing. So, I mean, most people think, oh, but you can never go home. Isn't that a ridiculous concept and I think it's actually really nice because you're out in the colony monitoring these birds measuring the chicks and then you can actually watch them the entire season sort of grow up and fledge but it's not a life of leisure the team clocks in 10 11 hour days in all sorts of weather keeping track of all puffin and turn activity on the island charting detailed reports of which birds are breeding where they're nesting, how often they feed their chick, and what types of fish they bring back to their nests. And puffins nest in burrows, small cave-like structures hidden in rock crevices that are ideal nesting sites. Puffin burrows can be up to eight feet deep in the boulders, and it's a perfect spot to raise a chick, keeping a puffling out of rough weather and out of reach of predators. Matt, Laura, and the interns monitor every burrow on the island, keeping an especially close eye on breeding adults that scurry in and around the boulders with fish in their mouths to feed their waiting chicks below. But how do the researchers know which puffin is which? It seems in kind of impossible to tell the puffins apart. Most but not all the puffins on Eastern Egg Rock have small identification bands on the bird's legs, which allow the research team to know who is who. And over the years, Project Puffin has built a database about the puffin colony, tracking individual puffins over their entire lifetimes, which can last upwards of 30 years. So when we read the bands of some of the birds, we enter them in the database. We can see where they've been previously, where they were banded, and some of the birds that we find are from, you know, the early 90s. And so they're, I mean, they're older than me, pretty much. If, to think that a small bird that lives in the middle of the North Atlantic and comes to shore once a year to breed is living older than us, this is crazy. The team works from sunrise to sunset, banding birds and collecting data. And it's a pretty physically demanding job. Just catching a puffling can be grueling. Yes, there are many challenges, especially this island in particular has 
very difficult burrows to access. Some of them are very deep in the boulders and it's hard to get at, but you often have to contort your body into very uncomfortable and awkward positions and then sort of squirm your way down into the rocks to try and get these chicks out. And on several occasions, you can't even get your head in a position where you can see. You're just sort of blindly putting your arm into these holes and hoping that you can feel a chick and pull it out. Apart from the chicks, the adults, actually the puffins, they may seem cute, but they have quite the uh, temper on them. Like, I'm going to have scars on my hand from their beaks. When you hold them, they'll reach around and grab and rip some of your thumb off, and their talons will tear your hands up pretty bad. But the pain's worth it because they're so, I mean, they're just such cool birds, so colorful and very interesting. After chatting for a few minutes, the team begins to spread out to different parts of the island to collect data. Steve leads us to a wooden blind at the top of a small hill, poised over a popular puffin hangout spot along the ocean. So the two of you should go on in. Okay, we're, go we're going into our largest observation blind on the island. Because when you go into one of these wooden shelters like this, the birds forget that you're here. So this box, this wooden plywood box we're in, functionally is like a big hollow rock. The blind looks like a sturdy lemonade stand made out of thick plywood, and it can fit a few people comfortably inside. These blinds basically serve as a researcher's camouflage and where they spend hours every day recording puffin activity. So we're getting quite a few sitting up on the rocks to our left now. As we sit in the bird blind, one puffin comes flying in from the ocean, making a circular pass overhead at around 50 miles per hour, lands a few yards away from us, and looks from side to side while holding a long, skinny fish in his beak. Steve points his camera in the puffin's direction and zooms in to identify the fish. Nice big haddock. That's a really nice fish. Haddocks are exciting fish in the diet. That's a new fish. Only the last few years we've seen haddock coming in. It's a recovering fish stock, so that's good news for the puffins to have on another another food item in their in their menu. But Steve isn't the only one impressed by the puffins' catch. This prized fish has also caught the eye of a laughing gull, a small seagull known for their call that sound like a high-pitched laugh. A laughing gull wouldn't hurt a puffin, but they would try to steal a puffin's meal. The puffin instantly disappears into the rocks, taking his prized fish with him. Steve gets us insight into what's going on, like a calm radio announcer giving a play-by-play. He may come out of that hole. I got a feeling that's not his burrow. He just dove in there because the gall was there. So I see what see how this little drama unfolds. That gall had his eye on the haddock, and the gall would grab the fish away from him if it had half a chance. Gall versus puffin, who will win? I wasn't expecting such a soap opera to unfold before us, and we wait and we wait in hushed silence. And then suddenly the puffin appears, a few boulders away, still with the fish in his beak as he beelines it to another boulder and disappears. The laughing gull is looking in the opposite direction, none the wiser. Did you see that? The puffin outsmarted the gull, which is great. <laughs> My view. So wait, how did we get here? 
How do we get from zero puffins to a full-blown puffin colony today? How do you get puffins to return to Eastern Egg Rock after a hundred-year absence? Well, first, Steve had to make Eastern Egg Rock puffin-friendly. He had to make sure it was a habitat that puffins could live in, and that would take some work. Once a system is out of whack, it can take a lot of effort to restore a quote-unquote balance. And it's not straightforward. Oftentimes, it means that conservationists need to take matters into their own hands, especially if a species has the deck stacked against them. And that can be really complicated and really uncomfortable. Sometimes conservationists have to kill, remove, or move one species of animal in order to save another. And that was definitely the case on Eastern Egg Rock. A lot had happened over the hundred years since puffins were extirpated. And the biggest difference was the boom in predator seagull population. The island started to be overrun by herring gulls and blackback gulls. The particular seagull population were skyrocketing in Maine due to all the trash and open landfills. In addition to eating trash and maybe stealing your picnic at the beach, these particular seagulls, herring gulls and blackback gulls, eat young chicks and bird eggs. Unlike the laughing gulls that we see today, these particular seagulls would make a quick meal of a puffin. So when Steve arrived at the island, the gulls were predator number one. It was tough to stomach, especially for a team of bird lovers. But Steve realized that preserving land and letting nature take its course was no longer a strategy. They had to kill some of the gulls in order to give a chance to puffins and other nesting birds. The puffins wouldn't stand a chance otherwise. With the gulls in reduced numbers, Steve began to reestablish the puffin colony. In broad terms, Steve had to create a whole new generation of puffin chicks who would grow up on the island and think of Eastern Egg Rock as home. Like many seabirds, Atlantic puffins can be hyper-local about their nesting sites and often breed and raise chicks in the place where they themselves were born. If Steve could get puffins to think of Egg Rock as the place of their birth, he had a shot of creating a generation of puffins that would return the island year after year to create more puffins. So how did he do this? Well, first, Steve traveled all the way to Newfoundland to find puffin chicks. Under countless permits, he climbed the cliffs along the coast of Newfoundland and collected pufflings. He flew back to Maine and hand-reared each puffling with a few volunteers. And it was a demanding job. They had to dig and build burrows and feed chicks every meal, even stuffing fish with vitamins. He took on the full-blown role of puffin parenting, ensuring that each puffling remained fed, dry, and safe. And he did this every summer. He traveled to Newfoundland, collected puffin chicks off the cliffs, flew back to Maine, hand-reared chicks until they fledged at the end of the summer, and repeat for years, translocating, rearing, and fledging 940 pufflings in Maine. But keep in mind, after all of this effort, there was no guarantee that the puffins would ever return. Puffins spend their early years out at the sea and only breed later in life. So even if Steve did everything right, he wouldn't know for years if his methods were even working. All he could do was wait and wait and wait and see if they would ever return. Well, when the project was in the early years, I worried that they wouldn't come back. Maybe it's not like sending your kids off to college, but it's sort of like that. They're out of the house and they're out, off on their own and, and they have to look after themselves because you can't be there all the time. So the researchers waited 
the team waited for four years without a single puffin returning to Eastern Egg Rock. Then, one day, everything changed. Steve was out on a boat and saw a puffin swimming near Eastern Egg Rock with an identification band on its leg. That was a big day, very big day. We'd waited for four years to see a puffin chick here. And then another puffin returned, followed by another. And it would take another four years of waiting, a total of eight years, for puffins to begin breeding and raising chicks on the island. They were returning, absolutely, but progress was still painfully slow. Steve wanted to encourage other puffins to check out Eastern Egg Rock and convince them to maybe adopt the island as home. So to do that, Steve had to get into the bird's psyche and entice them to land. He had to build on what he already knew about puffins, specifically how much these birds of a feather really do like to flock together. Because they are so gregarious. So if a puffin sits on the water by itself, it's extremely vulnerable to predators like a peregrine falcon or a great blackback gull. They have very strong social behaviors sit together so they can all be looking. So rather than two eyes looking for the hawk, you've got eight eyes looking for the hawk. See, when one takes off, they want to stick together. You don't want to be a lonely puffin. And that's why it was so hard to start a puffin colony, because they don't want to be by themselves. Puffins are super social. In order to attract puffins to the island, Steve had to give the illusion that there were more puffins on Eastern Egg Rock than they actually were. So he indulged in a little bit of visual and audio deception. First, Steve designed puffin decoys. These are little wooden and plastic puffin models, true to size, and they scattered them throughout the island on popular puffin rock ledges. Then, he also created mirror boxes. Similar to your household parakeet, puffins are actually drawn to mirrors and checking out their own reflections. And lastly, Steve also piped in audio recordings of bird calls on the island such as the common terns that nest side by side with puffins. He blared this throughout the island, attracting other native species. These innovations were born from a lot of trial and error, and they made it up as they went along, but they were getting results. Puffins and terns began to come to the island in greater numbers, actually adopting the island as their home. These pioneering methods, using decoys and audio recordings, are now known as social attraction techniques, and they have become the blueprint for conservationists around the globe. Conservationists now use Steve's techniques to reestablish seabird colonies of endangered species around the world, from endangered petrels in the Galapagos to the short-tailed abatross of Japan, and the rarest seabird in the world, the Chinese crested tern in the East China Sea. And to think that all of this started on a tiny island in Maine. So are you ever tired of being a spokesperson on behalf of puffins? No. No. Puffins can't talk, in our language at least, so somebody has to speak for them. And puffins need a voice more than ever. In a lot of ways, seabirds are, and forgive the overused metaphor, the canary in the coal mine. They are in the middle of the food chain and are indicator species of the health of the world's oceans. They are often the first to disappear when an ecosystem is out of balance. Seabirds are facing a lot of threats right now, 
including habitat loss to their nesting sites, overfishing the oceans, pollution, climate change, and warming waters. And in fact, the Gulf of Maine is one of the fastest warming spots on Earth. Warming oceans mean that the temperature will not be able to sustain life, and fish stocks and other food sources can't survive. Some years, puffin chicks have starved to death in their nests because there wasn't enough fish. There's also a ton of junk in our ocean. Puffins can mistake plastic for food and feed it to their chicks. And it's not uncommon for researchers to find chicks who have choked to death in their nests. And to top it all off, the U.S. government is now weakening protections for birds, just when they need it the most. Under the Trump administration, the Department of the Interior is coming out with a new interpretation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 and will no longer enforce the law, no longer prosecuting or fining oil and energy companies if they accidentally kill birds. Historically, the federal law inspired companies to take steps to reduce bird deaths, but it also held companies accountable for cleaning up habitats too. For example, after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010, BP had to pay $100 million because of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And that money went directly towards cleaning up the wetlands and restoring habitat for not only birds, but also other species affected by the oil spill. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act has been responsible for saving millions of birds' lives, but the 100-year-old federal law is now being gutted. Without the Migratory Bird Treaty Act being enforced, scientists are concerned that bird deaths will only increase over the next few years. And throughout the Northern Atlantic, puffins are on the decline, even in Iceland, home to where more than half of the world's Atlantic puffins breed. The International Union for Conservation and Nature listed Atlantic puffins as vulnerable to extinction. Why are seabirds so important to study and to Well. I mean, just for their own right, because they're fellow travelers on this spinning planet, I, I feel like all animals have a right uh, to live here, particularly those that uh, have been threatened by people. So it sort of goes to our stewardship rule. We try to keep as many species uh, thriving on the planet, because once they're gone, they're gone. It's like a rare work of art. Once it's gone out of the museum, it'll never come back. It's the same with seabirds, it's the same with any living creature. You don't have to move to a remote island or bring back a puffin colony from the dead to make a big difference. In fact, there are a few simple things that you can do to help seabirds. People can make a real difference for the birds. They can make a difference by the way they live on land, what they eat, eating sustainable seafoods. Uh, voting for laws and opportunities through our policy process to protect their foods and protect their habitat and protect them. Voting wisely about issues like climate change because the puffin is on the face of climate change. It's very sensitive to the warming of our planet and its future depends upon people that care. It's definitely a tough world out there for puffins. But there's also hope. It's a record-breaking season here for puffins on Eastern Egg Rock. And during the time that we visit, more than 172 puffin pairs are breeding on the seven-acre island. So despite everything, these little seabirds are making a comeback here. Well, look at the puffin billing on that rock. Oh, there's th three, there was two on the right were rubbing their bills together. Evidence of a mated pair. 
Wow, look at that group over there all, all behind the rocks. See, they're exploring the rock crevices. That's a little prospecting behavior there. Probably young birds looking for future nest sites, popping in and out of burrows. On the island, Steve sits in the bird blind, watching his puffins sit side by side, looking out over the ocean. Puffins circle overhead and land on nearby boulders, then disappear beneath the rocks to feed the next generation. Today is a journey back in time, and a reminder that we can bring species back from the brink if, and only if, enough of us care. And to think they can all start with just one person, a bird, and a will for a comeback story. This story was produced by Karen Shee and me, Anna Miller. Music for this episode is by Chris Hagen and Paddington Bear. Special thanks to Steve Kress, Matt Dickey, Laura Brazier, and the Project Puffin research team who were so generous with their time and for sharing all your puffin stories and even rowing us to the island on a rubber dinghy. And also a huge big thanks to Derek Jackson and Steve's book, Project Puffin, the improbable quest to bring a beloved seabird back to Egg Rock, which really helped with the research for this piece. Want to see some pictures of puffins? We've totally got them for you. Visit animaliapodcast.com. That's A-N-I-M-A-L-I-A podcast.com. There, we've posted a whole photo story about our trip to Eastern Egg Rock. And there, you also find a link to Project Puffin to learn more about their work, as well as five very, 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 very simple things that you can do to help puffins and seabirds. Every little bit counts. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please let us know. Rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, or tell a friend. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.